Amen. That is an awesome group. The Lord has blessed us. Okay, uh, Luke 13. Luke 13, while I fiddle with this. All right, we are here. Let me, let me just give a, a recap of where, where we've come so far. Uh, it's, it's been, it seems like we've been in Luke for a long time. Uh, just for fun, who was around the last time we went through Luke? We spent a lot of time in Luke. You remember that? Raise your hand. Yeah, I remember that. I think it was like a year. Was it, was it, it maybe more than that? Uh, I think that was right when uh, TCF was planted. We just planted TCF. This is a long time ago. Um, I still remember a lot of things from that. For some reason, I think maybe it was just the, the maybe it was where we were in the life of our church or in my own life personally. Uh, but I still remember a lot of those sermons. I think Chad did some of them and Billy did some of them. Uh, but I, I love the book of Luke. And uh, I was talking to Catherine right before the service. And I think that this is the, the gospel that has trained me the most uh, in the life of Jesus. I, I think I've learned the most about God from John. Uh, but Luke has really given me a picture of just the shape of Jesus' ministry and his life. Um, and so I, I really love this book. So let's recap. We've been here, we've been in Luke for a little while. Let's take a brief look back at, um, you know, sort of like last week on the book of Luke. So chapters 1 through 3, we had the birth story. And it, all this material is unique to Luke. And uh, what Luke points us to in those opening chapters is that God's promises all through the Old Testament are beginning to be fulfilled uh, in Jesus. But he also points us all the way back to Adam. Right? He traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to Adam and saying, a new Adam is here, a new man is here. Mankind now is to be in the image of Jesus. This is a new definition of what it means to be a man that pleases God. Um, so then chapters 4 through 9 are the Galilean ministry, ministry in Galilee. And it's in this section that Jesus' identity as the Son of God is really established. You know, when he's baptized, the Father says to him, You are my Son. With you I am well pleased. Uh, the demons say, We know who you are. The Holy One of God. Uh, Peter proclaims that Jesus is the, the Messiah, the Christ of God. And then at the transfiguration up on the mountain when Jesus is, is he, uh, he turns uh, white and, and, and dazzling, he, uh, there's a voice from heaven that says, this is my son, listen to him. And we also get glimpses 
uh, all through this book, really, but, but especially in that opening section, or the Galilean ministry, of Jesus' relationship with the Father through prayer and his, his empowerment by the Holy Spirit. Luke really underlines how much the Holy Spirit is active in the life of Jesus and how much Jesus' life is punctuated by moments of prayer with the Father. Um, and it also, this section showed us what, uh, what it is that Jesus came to do. Okay? What, he came to bring salvation. Well, what does that look like? What does it look like when the kingdom of God begins to uh, come into the earth? Well, good news is proclaimed to the poor. Recovery of sight to the blind. Liberty for those oppressed. Also, those who are exalted get humbled. And those who are of low estate get lifted up. The wealthy come tumbling down and, and the poor get lifted up. So this is, this, is the, this is what Jesus, this is the substance of his ministry. This is what he came to do, to bring salvation uh, in all of these different ways. And then we turn to the journey to Jerusalem. And it's in this section that we get, we get a glimpse of uh, how, what the end goal of Jesus' ministry is, how he's going to not just walk around and do individual acts of healing, but how he is going to set up, establish the kingdom of God in Jerusalem. And he's going there not to get up on the throne, yet he's going there to go into the ground and die to set up the kingdom in Jerusalem. And that, that is the act that founds the kingdom of God uh, once and for all. And it also, so it's also in this section that we learn that for salvation to come to all mankind, Jesus has to be rejected and killed and after three days raised. But it also shows us that if we are to participate with him in this ministry of salvation, if we are to be his disciples, we too must follow that path toward the cross uh, so that salvation could come forth through our lives. So it's for salvation. It's for the kingdom of God. It's for healing. It's for good news to the poor. But the way it happens is as Jesus' followers lay down their life, leave everything, leave the world system behind, and become acclimated and integrated into the kingdom of God, the system that runs the way God wants it to. So on this journey, we're going to pick up in chapter 13. Chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12, you could call them the, the introduction or the beginning. You know, if the journey is a good story, and, and Luke is a master craftsman in storytelling, it's beginning, middle, and end. Okay? Chapters 13 through 17 mark the middle. Or if you are uh, familiar with how to, how to write an, an essay in English, this is the body the paper. Okay, we've had the introduction, really had the thesis set out there uh, in chapter 9, and here is the body. We are developing what it looks like to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Jesus. And so uh, the, in this middle section, we slow down in terms of the journey. Right? It doesn't seem to move that quickly. In fact, there are the, 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 the scenes get longer and longer uh, where Jesus is encountering the Pharisees, teaching his disciples. Um, but I want to remind you that, that 
the, the beginning of the journey really ends in chapter 13, 9. That, that sort of ends the section. I want to pick up in, in, in chapter 13 at the beginning of the chapter. And this is as the, the introduction is coming to a close. Okay. Um, now, this, this little section, chapter 13, is, it comes at the end of a section where Jesus is telling his disciples how to hang in there once it starts going south. You remember this from last week? How to hang in there. Okay, you don't live to riches. Um, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Don't fear them. Fear God. And take, care, take, take heart because he knows how to provide for you everything. Then he gives some prophecies of the end times. And he says, listen, don't get distracted. Always live as if he's going to come at any moment. This is how you hang in there. You always keep the right perspective. This is how you don't get lulled away into uh, indulging yourself or treating uh, people badly. You always keep in mind that the master is coming at any moment. And we have to stay dressed and ready for action. Okay? Now, he says, uh, there were some present, so he's getting to the end of this little teaching section on hanging in there in the midst of trials. And there were some present at that very time so this is sort of an interruption. It's a strange interruption. Okay, this is one of the stranger sections in Luke. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood had, Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So what this is, is a, is a hot news story that they want Jesus' commentary on. Hey, ask him what, it, what... Jesus, what did you think about when Pilate... Uh, mingled the blood of those Galileans, right? Jesus, you're from Galilee. You did, you did a lot of stuff in Galilee. What do you think? What do you think about this this tragedy, this this act of persecution? And Jesus, and, and this this section, we need to we need to learn from this section. We need to learn from Jesus here. Um, this is this little passage. And I want to spend a little time here. is is great for us in the Twitter era, okay? Because basically this. This story comes floating across, and these people want Jesus' input on it. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? So he knows what's at the heart of their question. What, what was up with those Galileans? Were they, were they just really evil? And God wanted to punish them like this? Why do bad things happen to good people, Jesus? Do you think they were sinners because they suffered in this way? No. Nope. No, in no way. So their sin did not cause this. <laughs> but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. <laughs> Let's stay on message here. Let's stay on task. And then he provides his own story, which is even more of sort of a sensational story. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell. I bet you're wondering about those guys too, huh? What about this tragedy, this freak accident? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. <laughs> but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So you see what he's doing here? They, the, the crowds want to come. They, wanna, they want to get Jesus' attention over here. And he just, he just takes it and he goes, No, 
But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And he just stays right on, right on message. Um, so I, I, it's masterful here how he does this. He takes it, he comments on it, barely enough, <laughs> and then he turns it right back on them. No, they weren't sinners. But unless you repent, you're going to die just like that. I, I like that. That, uh, that kind of captured me this week. In a distracted age, we need, uh, we need this kind of focus. All right, so then at the end, uh, at the end of the, uh, this portion here, it goes uh, verses 6 through 9, he tells this story of the fig tree. Okay? And one of the things I, I've noticed as I've read is, you know, the Pharisees get a hard, they, they, they kind of get the, the brunt of Jesus' uh, prophetic edge, right? Uh, there's not much good that happens with the Pharisees. But I'm, I'm starting to notice all these places where Jesus is saying, I'm giving them an opportunity. I really do love them. These really are the people of God. Okay? And this is one of those parables. Okay? Man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. Okay? Here I am. This is supposed to be the people of God bearing fruit, the fruit of the kingdom. There's nothing here. Right? These are unmarked graves that people are walking over. This is hypocrisy. Everything. Look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should, I, why should it use up the ground? <laughs> I love that. Cut this tree down. It's just using up good ground. right? In other words, the ground is more important than this tree. The dirt. And he answered him, let this alone a year until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So patience. Patience. Even, in, even with these guys, Jesus is patient. Okay? And you see this all along the journey. He, he keeps going. He keeps accepting their invitation and going into their houses. Okay? And as we go, I'm going to try and point out some other instances where Jesus' patience toward the Pharisees really comes out. We always think of him just, he's totally fed up with the Pharisees. But no, he's really giving them chance after chance after chance. Okay? In Leviticus 19, where the second greatest commandment is listed, it says, don't hate your brother in your heart, but reason frankly with him. You will love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is doing this. He's fulfilling the great commandment. He's not hating these guys in his heart. He is reasoning frankly with them. He truly does love them. Right? Um, and and we, need to, we need to do that, lest we become self-righteous and be like, oh, Pharisees. <laughs> um, Jesus loved them, and he reasoned frankly with them. And he did not slander them, but he really went in, and he did. Uh, he was brutally honest with them, but he was not slanderous or, or demeaning. He, he, he remained uh, truly loving to them. Okay. So, uh, chapter 13, verse 10. This is a beautiful story. Uh, Luke's detail here of the physical nature of this woman is really, is really rich. Right? This is a woman who is, by the way, this is in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Okay, so if you are a good Jew, this is, this is the center of your life. Right? This is church. Okay, and so right here, he says, uh, 
She had a disabling spirit for 18 years, and she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. What a picture of sin. She, she's doubled over. She can't, she can't stand straight. She's crooked, twisted. And it's, it's described in like bondage language. She is enslaved to this evil, the spirit of infirmity. When Jesus saw her, he called her to himself. He called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. Okay? She could look up and see Jesus. She could see the world. She could walk right. Okay? She was made straight. And she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. Not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Now listen listen to this. Uh, listen to the language he uses. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie or loose his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? You'll even untie your donkey if it's thirsty on the Sabbath. And you won't loose this woman from her disease so that she could have life. She's a daughter of Abraham. She's not a donkey. She's a precious daughter of Abraham. And he said these things, and all his adversaries were put to shame. There's a lot of translations that say humiliated. The hypocrisy is so uh, tangible. Not even a donkey. We will untie a donkey from a post if it's been there for a few hours. But we won't untie a daughter of Abraham who's been bent over for 18 years so that she could glorify God and be made well. Um, And that really encapsulates Jesus' whole issue with the Pharisees. In all of their striving to be uh, law-abiding Jews, they are missing it completely. And he draws this distinction. I think in this story, uh, is is as clear as it's ever been, you won't even, (laughs) you'll you'll untie a donkey. And it says they were put to shame. They were humiliated. The people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Okay, so through this section, this middle section, this is about who who will participate in the kingdom. What kind of people? And also, what is the kingdom like? What's it like in the kingdom of God? And who gets in? Okay, that's what this middle section really revolves around. And right at the beginning uh, of this, this middle portion, he gives some, some parables about the kingdom. They're two short parables, the mustard seed and the leaven. And he says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And these parables really say the same thing. This really small, insignificant thing turns into a big and life-giving thing. It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. 
Okay, and so what he's saying is, listen, the, the acts of the kingdom, life in the kingdom, it's small. It consists of little tiny acts of obedience. But listen, all those little tiny acts of obedience, they all get huge and provide shelter and do all sorts of things that it didn't look like at first. Okay, so we're getting some indication of what the kingdom is like. All through this section, we will see these opposites, these reversals happening. Look small, get big. If you're wealthy, you can be made poor. If you're poor, you can be lifted up. If you're humble, you can be exalted. If you're exalting yourself, you can be humble. Okay, so all these things have this reversal happening in them. All right? And so the question of this section is, Lord, will those who are saved be few? As he's going along through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem, someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. He doesn't really answer their question, but he says, there's a, no, there's a door open, but it's narrow which really describes the call to discipleship. You can go through, but you have to leave everything behind. Only you can get through the door. You can't take anything in there with you. Okay? But it's open. There's an opportunity for you to freely come. Many will seek to enter and will not be able. Why not? Because they want to bring all their stuff. Because they're too wealthy. Because they have, as we see a little bit later, they've, they have, uh, they just bought some oxen and they need to try them. You know, it doesn't fit through the door. But if you're, if you're going to revolve everything, if you're going to leave it all, and revolve your whole life around me, there's a door. Walk right through it. But he also says um, that the door is going to be shut. That the opportunity is not going to be here forever. And that once it's shut, it's not enough to just know stuff about Jesus. He says, you will begin to say, well, we ate and drank in your presence. And, and you taught in our streets. You came and preached for us. We were there at the synagogue when you healed. And he goes, yeah, okay. <laughs> Did you leave everything and follow me? Do I know you? And he says that, those, that you can't rest on the fact that you had some interaction with me. Okay? And we need to hear this. You can't, you can't rest on someone else's discipleship. Uh, your parents or, or your really godly, radical friends. Uh, you yourself have got to hear the call of Jesus and leave everything and follow him. It's not enough just to hear... Eight weeks of teachings on Luke. <laughs> hey, you taught in our streets. Can't help you. I do not know where you come from. And you're going to see all these kinds of people that you never thought would get in, getting in. And you yourself are going to be shut out. Chapter 14 begins with another Sabbath. 
He's breaking the Sabbath left and right at this point. And again, it's the same thing. He's going to heal on the Sabbath. They, they don't understand this. He heals this guy with dropsy on the Sabbath, and they get mad at him for healing on the Sabbath. Okay? This time he's not in the synagogue. He's in the house of a bigwig, uh, a, a ruler of the Pharisees. And he keeps, he, uh, he's re- he responded to their question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Boom. <laughs> but they remain silent. He took him and healed him and then sent him away. And they said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? Don't you understand salvation? Don't you understand that the, the Sabbath is meant to bring life into the world? This is the whole issue. He, can't, he cannot get this through to them. They, they cannot see through their institution, the way they've always done it, their traditions. Now, he gives, he gives a couple parables here. They have to do with the inclusion of the excluded and the exaltation of the humble. Uh, when you are invited to a wedding feast, I love this one. Do not sit down in a place of honor. So he's noticing how in, at, this, at, at dinner, they're all sort of, they like the good seats. And so he uses this as an opportunity, as a teaching moment. He says, listen, don't sit down in the place of honor. Someone more distinguished than you might be invited by him. Now, just stop and think about that. Uh, someone more distinguished than you may walk through the door at some point. And they're going to go on to bigger and better things than you. Uh, So it's better to take the lower seat and be called up when the time is right than to really take the, the good seat and then when that person who's more distinguished than you comes in, you're going to have to, you're going to, have to step down and let them sit in your spot. Right? Again, this whoop, reversal. When you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes up, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So, humility and exaltation. Go low, and you'll be lifted up. Go high, and you're going to be cast down. And then inclusion and exclusion. He says, when you give a feast, invite, don't invite your rich neighbors, lest you be repaid. Don't look for the reciprocal kickback. When you invite a feast, invite people that can't pay you at all. Got nothing. Because you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And he said, he gave a parable. At the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, everything is now ready. But they all began to make excuses. And then he says, go out into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. If you don't have time for me to come to my feast, I'm rescinding the invitation. I'm going to get people who will be thrilled. I got, I got plenty of people I can call on that will just be absolutely thrilled to be here. And I'm going to go find them. 
All kinds of people. They're all going to just be streaming in while you're taking care of your oxen, while you're out in your field, uh, while you're with your wife. I mean, these are all good things, but this is where Jesus wants to, to press. If that comes between you and me, we've got problems. There's all sorts of great things in life. You got a field, great. You got oxen, great. You have a wife, great. But does it come between you and me? Because if it does, I'm going to go find someone who doesn't have anything. And they will come into the kingdom. So then he underscores again at the, at the end of chapter 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And he gives this parable about the uh, counting the cost. And we always need to keep in mind that we can't always focus on cost. Cost is an important consideration. But cost is relative. You understand what I mean by that? Like if I spend... If someone wants to, if someone brings me a pencil, and they say, "Look at this pencil. I'll give it. It's yours. Thousand dollars." <laughs> what kind of pencil is this? It's yours. Thousand dollars. No, no deal. But if someone comes to you to say, "I have a three thousand square foot house, five bedroom, three bath, all new. It's all updated." It's yours, $1,000. Yes! <laughs> right, so cost is relative to worth. And so every time, you know, Jesus is saying, listen, it costs you everything, but you have no idea what I'm worth. Okay? And this is why we now shift um, in the coming chapters to this talking about Money. Money blinds you to true worth. Okay, when you have your eyes fixed on what the world calls worthy, then the call to leave everything and follow Jesus seems like a pretty raw deal. But when you renounce all that the world exalts and you fix your eyes on who it is that's before you, and the opportunity that he's giving you to be loosed from your bonds, to be healed and straightened, it's a no-brainer. What is all this stuff? It's just trash. You, you go streaming for that narrow door. Okay? So yes, it's hard. It costs you everything, but you gain immeasurably more. All right? Amen? Is that good? Is he worthy? Is he worth it? He is worth it. All right. Chapter 15. It's a great chapter. Uh, it's, it's about rejoicing when the lost is found. The joy of finding a lost thing. This is what salvation is all about. It was lost. Now I'm found. So he's still at this dinner party. 
And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, eats with them. So this is the context for all of this. This is the context for these three great parables. So he says, listen, if you guys have 100 sheep, one goes missing, you leave the 99, and you search all over for it, and you are so overjoyed when you find that one. If you lose, if you have 10 coins, you lose one. You search everything, high and low, and you rejoice when you find that lost coin. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Do you understand? I didn't come for the well. I came for the sick. And it's... Don't you realize, when we, when we heal someone who is sick, someone who for 18 years has been bound by a spirit of infirmity, isn't that joy? Isn't that more joy than you would have if you banned her from, from your synagogue and just had your normal service? Did what you always do? How much more joy is it when someone who is lost or, or sick is healed, found? Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus is coming down and he's saying, Rejoice! Good news to the poor. And somehow, people can't grab onto that. They They grumble. Why would you grumble? And he gives the, the parable of the prodigal son, which is a great story in itself, but, but do you see the context here? He's talking about the older brother. Listen, the father was overjoyed when the son came back. Man, he had done some bad things, but did you see that heart of repentance? He came back and he just wanted to be a slave. He really got it. He made himself low. And so the father says, of course, of course, come back. I was always waiting for you. And the older brother can't stand that the father has had compassion on the younger son. And he says, but you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive and was lost and is found. And there's just there's some, there's some heartache in that. You, I appreciate that you've been with me for so long, but you don't understand. <laughs> you don't get my heart. If you can't rejoice with me when, when he comes back, especially in this circumstance, I don't think you know me. Okay, and this is what Je- exactly what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. Now again, here, all I have is yours. You've been with me. So there's love here. There's an acknowledgement that you are my people. You're my own. You should know me. You should know my heart. But if, if you can't even rejoice with me at, at things that are worthy of, of joy, you're not, you're not really my son. You, do, you, you don't share in uh, the vision of this family. All right, so then 16. Um, there's, there's two parables, and they have to do with wealth. 
And this is a really, to me, this is one of the more fascinating parables. This first one about um, the dishonest manager. This is a little hard to interpret. Who had a challenge here? To this is kind of a head scratcher, isn't it? You're like, so is is this good or bad? <laughs> um, but I think if you look at this whole chapter together, you can see you can see some. It starts to emerge. I was chewing on this for a long time. I was trying to think like, what? There's so many theories floating out there. I did all this. Some people think like the guy was actually just saying when he when he like cut their bills that he was just cutting out the interest and all this stuff. Um, but I think that that we don't have to complicate it. Um, if we just keep it simple and, and read it and hear what it's saying, I, I think it, it can really speak to us. Um, it's a secular scenario that Jesus is is using to point out the limits of wealth. To point out that it's obvious that you cannot base your life on wealth. Even in the secular world we see this. All right, so let's let's look at this. Uh, there's a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that the man was wasting his possessions. So this was not an upstanding guy. I mean, he was at, at, at best careless. At worst, he was like, you know, embezzling or, or squandering. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be a manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? So my master is taking away the management from me. So what's, uh, what's commendable in the manager is that he understood when wealth was, was gone. He understood when it was at its end. Okay. Oh, yeah. Um, money's not going to help me out here. I need to start thinking about my future. I need to start thinking about where I'm going to land. Okay. When, when there's job security it's really easy to get lax. And it was probably because he was manager of so much wealth that um, he, he did not feel the need to be, you know, uh, frugal, shrewd. But once all that started to leave, once his job was at stake, and he's, he, he's worried, he's, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I'm headed toward poverty. So I'm not thinking about wealth anymore. I'm done. Uh, I got to think about longevity. I got to think about what's going to happen after this. So summoning his master's debtor one by one, he starts slashing, <laughs> slashing prices. <laughs> Everything must go, you know. And these are like doorbuster deals, right? Uh, And so the master, he commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, right? And so there's nothing good that Luke has to say about wealthy people in his gospel, very little. So this this master, I don't think, is a picture of, like, God and the manager was. So that's one thing that can be confusing. If you're like, oh, this is the master. Oh, yeah, this must be God, and he must be proud of this guy's shrewdness. He, he recognizes, because he himself is shrewd, right? he's a miserly guy. And he says, I see, that's something I would do. Right? That's why he commends the 
the manager for his shrewdness. So he says, listen, the sons of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Make friends for yourself. So what he was doing was he was, rather than, rather than relying on his job, he said, whoa, the end is in view. I need to make some friends so that when this is done, I got some people I can kind of call in favors with. So he starts leveraging, <laughs> leveraging himself okay, in the way that he can. So listen to what he says. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, and that's a big win, when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So money's not bad, but the way that you handle yourself, the way that you handle your wealth is very important. How you should handle it is like this guy did when he discovered that None of it was his, and it was all about to go away. And as soon as the end was in view, he knew it was really important. And so he's saying, you see this situation? That guy, he, he got it figured out. It took kind of a crisis, but he got it figured out. Now, you all, in the kingdom, get it figured out. Nothing that you have is yours. You're just managing it anyway, and it's going to get called into account. And so if you're just squandering it, if you're just consuming it on yourself, that's not going to do anything for you. What you need to do is take all of the wealth that you, that you steward and leverage it into relationships, into you want to, to win people's favor. You want to distribute wealth. And he was reckless with the cancellation of debts, right? And he's saying... It's kind of how we should live. Right? You don't want to extract everything that people owe you out of them. If you, if you are generous, you're going you're gonna to win people over. He says, and then they're going to they're gonna receive you into eternal dwellings. So what's he saying? He's saying, send it forward. Send it forward. Send it into eternity. And you're going to see people there that you want into the kingdom through your reckless use of wealth generous, giving. Uh, in Corinthians it says, God loves a cheerful giver, a hilarious giver. Make friends for yourself that way. And guess what? You're going to see them in heaven. Right? And it's all going to come back to you up there. So that's the, that's the best I can do with that one. You co- contrast that with the next parable. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Right? Just classic luxury. Good food, good clothes. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with swords. Sores. Not swords. Um, that changes the parable slightly. <laughs> who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Right? So lavish extravagance, lowest of the low. Guess what? In the next life, total flip. Poor man, he's at Abraham's side. 
The rich man is in Gehenna being burned with fire. He's in torment. And he says, listen, in here, in eternity, there's no more flipping. Right? On earth, you can make yourself lower. You can, get a, you can give yourself to the poor. You can bring them up with you. But here, right, the door's closed. The positions are fixed. So we live, in a, we live in a time of opportunity where if we are poor, if we are wealthy, if we, if we have something to give, we can lower ourselves. But he says, listen, uh, the guy who's in hell begs, says, just send them, send them a warning. And he says, no, no, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. No, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. And he says, no. No, they won't. Because their problem is not that the sign is lacking. The problem is their inability to hear. The problem is their inability to see through this film, the shadow of wealth. You can't see past it. And so he's saying, it doesn't matter what happens on the other side of that shadow. They're they're all just going to be staring right there at their wealth. Nothing's going to go on that gets their attention. They're just consumed with uh, luxury and wealth. And so stuff, money here, is one of these, it's, it's it's a big deal for Luke. It blinds people to eternal realities. It embitters people against true joy. Right? If I'm just, it says the, the Pharisees were lovers of money. And they, they love money so much they can't rejoice when someone gets healed. They love their status so much that they, they can't rejoice. And so you see in this middle section, this is what's happening. He's saying, listen. People are getting into the kingdom that you would never, that you don't even have the time of day for. Meanwhile, everything you have is coming to an end. You need to wake up. You start looking beyond wealth. He says you cannot serve God and money. Mammon. Mammon at best can be like a, a resource for the, for the true work of the kingdom. At best. But you need to be on guard. And then he ends, uh, on into chapter 17, we end this, this large scene, this dinner scene. He turns to his disciples. You know, at this point, he's been talking to the Pharisees, reasoning with them while his disciples are there. So he's really teaching his disciples by having these conversations with the Pharisees. Now he turns to his disciples and he starts talking about the Pharisees to the disciples in the presence of of the Pharisees. He said to them, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Um, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. It's an interesting place to put that. He's right in the presence of his brothers. And they 
he's rebuking them. But he's still saying, listen, anyone who, who turns to me, I've got to forgive them. And they said, increase our faith. Yeah. Seven times in a day, you've you got to forgive them. No questions asked. Someone asks you for forgiveness. You have to forgive them. Seven times in a day. Increase our faith. We need faith. If we're going to be that kind of people. And then we have a great, uh, a couple great parables. Well, I'll just end with this one. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterwards you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? And you can kind of hear him saying, these guys, they, they want to be held in such high esteem because they're doing God's commandments. Look at us. We obey the commandments of God. You know, we deserve honor. And Jesus is saying, no, that, that just, that's your duty. That just puts you, that just evens the account, right? That, that brings us up to zero. Okay. If you didn't do that, we'd have a problem. So there's no gold stars. And the Pharisees love the gold stars. They, they just want to be honored for how much they keep the law. And if you back up a little bit, I, I, I missed this. In between the uh, dishonest manager and the rich man and Lazarus, he says, uh, it says in verse 14, chapter 16, verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Interesting little part here. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then... The good news of the kingdom is preached. And the ESV says everyone forces his way into it. Um, I think a better translation is everyone is urged into it. It makes sense in context here. So listen, guys, we're getting people in that you, you would never think. Everyone's urged into it. This is a season of good news to the poor, to the crippled. The tax collectors, the sinners, come on. But at the same time, everyone's being urged into the kingdom. At the same time, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass heaven and earth to pass away than it is for one dot of the law to become void. So it's not like we're bringing down the law to get all these people in. And he's sure to say that. And then this, this little jab about divorce is aimed right at the Pharisees. Right? Because he quotes, he, he lays down the law. He says, listen, we're getting everyone in here. But you want to know who's not getting in here? 
It's the people who fudge around this divorce thing to justify adultery, which was rampant among the Pharisees. They loved to find loopholes. Okay? And so he says, yeah, we keep the law around here, especially the ones that says, don't divorce and remarry. And they go, uh, right. So it's just another, another nail that he's hammering here. Uh, it seems out of the blue, but he's saying, let me tell you, we, we are keeping the law. You think that I'm eating with tax collectors and sinners and lowering all these standards? No. Let me tell you one standard that hasn't been lowered, the one that you constantly break and justify yourselves in, okay? Because they're hypocrites. And so he says, he wraps it up by having this little thing. Don't, don't seek commendation for just doing what was your duty. That's not, that's nothing. You did your duties, great. You, you are now living the life you were created to live. You are in line with the created order. <laughs> this, is no, this is not special. Okay? And the Pharisees just wanted honor. They wanted to be special for their attention to the law, which was mere hypocrisy. Okay? They, did, they were not attentive to the law. Uh, and on, on many accounts, they were uh, flagrantly violating the law, but covering it up with, with legal loopholes. Okay, so next week we will finish the journey. Okay, from 1711 onward, for the next couple chapters, you're going to see a lot of references to the actual journey start to pick back up. The pace sort of quickens. Um, The stories are a little shorter, a little more compressed, but they're much more loaded now, given all that we've come through. Okay, toward the end of the journey... Jesus is going to say stuff like, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I mean, it's just one sentence. But if you've read all of chapter 15, that sentence hits you like, yes. That's the heart of the, that's the, heart of the ministry of Jesus, that's the heart of salvation. Um, so let me just give us some opportunities to examine ourselves. Uh, money, stuff, wealth, life, the just American pastimes, sports, fill in the blank, mammon. What's our attitude toward that? Jesus is quick to, uh, you know, all through Scripture we see wealth being used for good purposes. You know, we're not all to called to take vows of poverty. That's not, that's not the correct application. We are called to see money as just money. It's just money. It's just stuff. I can equally lavish upon you as I can myself. It has no, no hold on me. Right? And I realize that I'm just a steward. That I, I'm, I'm going to have to give an account and so I might as well make friends, with, <laughs> establish relationships with this stuff that I've been given. And look beyond, look toward the eternal dwellings with all my stuff. 
and use that as the decision-making, this filter for how I steward my stuff. Well, what's it going to mean in eternity? What's it going to mean in eternity? What's it going to mean in eternity? That's the question we need to ask of how we're using our stuff. Not get into technical, um, you know, get bogged down in like, well, you know, how, how much really is a godly amount to spend on a pair of pants? Just ask, what's it mean for eternity? Right? Uh, don't get bogged down in that stuff. Just realize it's, it's just stuff. I think that's, that's what we need to hear. It's, it's just stuff. And use it. Make a hundred friends with your wealth so that they can greet you in eternity. Um, so living with the end in view, and not that, meaning like when it fails, Jesus says when wealth, wealth fails, definitely at death, maybe before then, when it fails, what then? So always view it as just this transient stuff with no hold on us. And also to, to, to get that shadow of that, that veil of wealth so we can actually see people who are hurting and rejoice at their salvation, rejoice at their healing. Right? Does your desire for personal time or your own comfort, does that blind you from opportunities to rejoice at a sinner who's re- who is finding repentance? Right? Does our work of outreach and, and, and follow-up, does that, does that impinge on your life? Or do you take joy in everything, every little opportunity? Hey, if it, if it even looks remotely like someone's coming back to the Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm all in. So money and stuff, uh, that's, we need to, to examine ourselves. Let the Holy Spirit examine us. And then humility, right? Do we, do we take the low seat or do we kind of take the high seat? Um, do we expect, you know, based on, our view of ourselves, do we expect a certain level of treatment, <laughs> a certain standard of living? Uh, or do we always take the lowest seat and just and wait to be called up, right? Give yourself to humble tasks and servanthood. You know, the servant's heart really never seeks thanks. That's how you can tell if you have a servant's heart or not. Do you really want to be acknowledged for what you're doing? And that'll, that'll cut through everything. Or are you just doing it in response to who God is? You just want to be like him. Yeah, money, humility, servanthood. These are some basics for us. We've been going back to the basics, uh, but I think it'd be good to, to spend some time in prayer around uh, those things. Uh, servanthood, that's a big one for, for me. Uh, I think that um, 
there's a lot of, there have been some times with God where he's revealed to me. You, you really just want recognition. You really want something out of this. And it is so hard. It's so hard to escape that. Um, but God can do it. And it's a, it's a joyous place to get to. Uh, all right, well, let's, let's end in some, some worship. And somebody needed to flag me down and tell me that I preached an hour. <laughs> you all are gracious. <laughs> you never looked bored. Usually I start winding down when someone starts going. You're getting too good at looking like you're, you're interested. <laughs> Tone it down a little. Uh, let's, let's stand together. Let me pray, and we'll just uh, we'll close with a song and just send us out. Father, thank you uh, that you have called us to yourself. Thank you that you uh, have opened the door to us. Lord, it's a narrow door, and we want to come through. Lord, we want to leave everything and follow you. And we see your surpassing worth. We see it, God. Jesus, you have proven yourself so many times to us. You have been so gracious and patient with us. We honor you for that. And God, I pray that you would take us deeper into your kingdom. That we would live according to the kingdom, the ways of the kingdom. Lord, that the ways of the world would not have a hold on us. God, that you would pluck us out from this corrupt system. uh, This this wealth-blinded, self-exalting, self-obsessed system. That we, uh, that we just live in, God. Bring us out of that Jesus and teach us the ways of the kingdom. Lord, help us to bear fruit truly in keeping with repentance, God. Help us to leave this stuff behind and uh, to look to the end, God, to look toward the, the final reward and to use every minute and every resource that we have, Lord, uh, between now and then, uh, to, to serve you, uh, to, to join you in seeking and saving the lost. Help us, God. Help us, Lord. Lord, if our hearts are not pricked for the lost, bring us to repentance. Show us what is blinding us, Lord. Show us what has a hold on our heart. If we can't rejoice with you, Lord, help us, Lord. God, give us all wisdom in a a true assessment of ourselves, where our hearts are. And uh, lead us in the ways of the kingdom. You are our master. We thank you that you've done it all. You did it. Uh, You walked this life. You overcame every temptation. And uh, it's in in you that we put all of our hope. You can do it, Lord. You have done it. And you will do it in all of us. Uh, We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.